Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. And I hope this Origins series has been super helpful. I know it has just been a blessing for me as I've been studying and just really discovering. And if you remember, we're really, if you could take the entire Bible and kind of fold it up into four sections, if you could kind of place four chapters on redemptive history, you could, you could break it down like this. Chapter one answers the question, where did we come from? Creation. And chapter two answers the question, where did it all go wrong? Fall. And chapter three answers the question, what is God doing to take what went wrong and make it right? Redemption. And finally, chapter four will be the restoration of all things. When we're in a new heavens and a new earth and, we, and all things that have been lost have been restored. And it's just such a beautiful story that we have In the beginning, God provided humanity with more than enough. If you've been here and you heard the messages on Genesis 1 and 2, you'll realize that God created richly, provided richly for humanity. In the beginning, God provided humanity with more than enough. And he only made one request. Trust me. Trust me. In the beginning, God created humanity with more than enough, and he had one prohibition. He made one comment to them that he said, trust me, if you eat of that tree, it's going to kill you. You can have every tree. All of this I have created for you. You are the crown jewel of my creation. I've endowed you with purpose. I've breathed my life into your lungs. You are made in my image. You live in paradise. But there's one thing that I need you to do. I need you to trust me. Because if you don't trust me, it's going to kill you. And of course, if you're like me, the one thing that you're told not to do, that's the thing that you want to do. And so last week we talked about the first sin, which if you remember, the first sin in Genesis 3 is really a pattern for all sin. The way that Adam and the way that Eve were tempted by the snake and the way that God's word was attacked is the same way that God's word is attacked in the way that we're tempted today. Like the first sin, the root of every sin is the temptation to be in control. Amen? Anybody in this room feeling that temptation? Anybody don't like waiting on God? Anybody don't like the pleasures that God has for you and so you seek after your own pleasures, right? The tempta- every sin starts with not trusting God with a temptation to take control back for yourself. Our final installment, today is the season finale, y'all, of our origin series. 
we'll finish in the last 16 or 17 verses of Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 records what happens when man tries to take control of his life. Genesis 3 records what happens when you and I seek to become our own gods. And I've entitled this final message today, Brokenness and Hope. And it says in hope, and that was my fault. Brokenness and hope. Brokenness and hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have your way as we finish this series. I pray that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 would just burn deeply on our hearts as we learn to know the story so that we can be followers of Jesus who tell the story. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open up with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Verses 7 through 24. We're going to like walk through the text today. I know I, I feel like I've been really buttoned up. At least I think I have. And in the last couple of weeks and kind of been able to kind of thematically uh, um, kind of create these themes for you to follow along today. We're going to just walk through the text. I'm going to do my best to kind of pull you out so you can see the big picture. But we're going to finish kind of the final installment of really what is called the fall of man. Everything that was right went wrong. And this is actually part two of last week's sermon. And so if you want to go back to our podcast or our YouTube, you can actually watch last week's and kind of put these two together if you have the space. Genesis 3, and we're going to read 7 through 24. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Amen? Amen. And if you didn't get a chance to hear or be here for last week, you're still going to be, you'll be just fine this morning. So don't worry about that. Genesis 3, we're going to read verses 7 through 24. And the scripture reads like this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now remember, Satan, in the form of a snake, has slithered his way into the garden and has convinced Eve, who then has convinced Adam to partake of the tree that God said not to partake of. And I want you to know, this isn't about fruits and trees. This is about trust. Are y'all with me? Yeah. Like, it's not like, hey, this fruit, it's not about fruits and trees. This is about trusting when God says no, do you trust him? Okay. So after, after they have both partake of the forbidden fruit, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths or coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Ooh, that might be just a question for us right now. If God were to say that right now, where are you? How would you respond? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them then the Lord said Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Amen. This final section of Genesis 3 records the aftermath of sin. It's, it's theologically, it's called the fall, the result of sin. It's the fallout. It's, it's the source of evil. It's the source of pain. It's the way the Bible describes why things are the way they are. As we started with the question last week, have you ever looked at this world and thought to yourself, how could something so beautiful be so terrible? So what I'm going to try to do today in the aftermath of sin, I'm going to try to frame it in three ways so that you can kind of have an outline in your head if you're taking notes Three sections, three ways that we're going to frame the fallout or the fall. Section one is going to be the instant reaction. What is the immediate reaction to sin? Step two is the long-term consequences. And finally, a hidden treasure. A hidden treasure um, that's really hard to see unless you are reading the text through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so let's talk about the instant reaction. Serpent tempts, Eve eats, Eve gives to Adam, Adam eats, eyes open, instant reaction. Now there are two characters in this story that I want to observe their instant reaction. There's man and God. Let's talk about man. The text pictures 
the first humans in complete disarray. They're a mess. They're a wreck after they've eaten of the forbidden fruit. They're naked, afraid, and ashamed. They're running, hiding, lying, and covering up. Adam even has the audacity to throw his bride under the bus. Y'all capture that? Like God goes up to him, he's like, what happened? He's like, don't look at me. Look at the woman you gave me. Like all of a sudden, right? Like it's her fault. Jerk. Not too far-fetched. But are we really surprised? Can you honestly look at the disarray of humanity after sin, and can you really be surprised? This is what sin does. It corrupts human nature. It spreads like an infectious disease. Here in chapter three, Adam is running, hiding, blame shifting, covering up, lying. In chapter four, Adam's son will kill his own brother, committing the first murder in human history. By chapter six, humanity will be so wicked and their thoughts so evil that God will even regret. That's what the scripture will say. That's a tough theological thing to wrestle with. God will regret that he even put man on the earth. I think one of the best ways to describe what sin does to humanity is that sin dehumanizes us. I mean, think of something that devolves, something that goes backwards. Sin makes us less than what we were created to be. And you know what's like so fascinating to me There are so many things that our culture celebrates and calls human progress and enlightenment, but it's really just idolatry. It's autonomy. It's the rejection of God's word. It's man pretending to be God. And what this chapter is really trying to tell us is this. When man pretends to be God, He destroys himself and everything around him in the process. That describe your life? I know it describes mine. Like whenever I take control, whenever I try and do things in my own strength, whenever I walk in autonomy, whenever I determine for myself what is right and what is wrong, I don't need God, I don't need his word, I don't need all those religions. Whenever I try to determine what is good for me, it always ends up in destruction. I don't know, maybe someone here says, no, every decision I've ever made on my own autonomously has just gone well. But when man pretends to be God, he destroys himself and everything around him in the process. Now, I want to go from the instant reaction of man. Remember, naked, afraid, ashamed, running, hiding, lying, blaming. Let's look at God's instant reaction. Now, here's what's really fascinating. We typically associate this chapter with God's judgment, don't we? But I want you to know that God's instant reaction is mercy. 
Did you know, and this is going to sound like maybe incredibly off-putting, but stay with me. Did you know that God had every right to eliminate Adam and Eve and just kind of pull the plug on this whole human experiment? In fact, if they had like dropped dead in that moment, it would have been just now, there might be a few of you in this room that maybe you don't really believe in God, and so you're kind of rolling your eyes. But just think about it. If, let's just, just imagine for a minute. Like, if there is a God, and if God created everything beautifully good for man, and if this infinitely wise judge was sinned against, then justice would demand judgment. Amen? And if you still don't agree with me, then why do we have a court of law? Why do we believe that people should be in jail? Why do we believe that when someone steals from me, they deserve some sort of penalty? Even if you're not a believer in God, you believe in justice and judgment. And so in this word in chapter three, they deserve judgment. Think about it. They had just committed a crime against an infinitely righteous judge. They had just attempted sedition against an infinitely good and gracious king. I mean, even in this world, if you commit treason, it's a death penalty. And besides all of that, God already warned them. Do you remember? He says, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Trust me. I'm going to tell you up front. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Yet, God's instant reaction is not to condemn them, but to draw them out of hiding. Think about that. I love how the text radically confronts your misconceptions of God. Uh, let, me, let me put it like this. Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? Have you ever felt like God has left you? Have you ever cried out, God, where are you right now? God, I need you. I can't see you, feel you, or hear you. You've left me, God. Have you ever thought about that? Or have you ever thought that you're too far gone? Now, this is kind of tough because I'm preaching to the choir. Like, folks who feel that way don't even show up to church. But every once in a while, there's somebody in here that I know feel, you know what? Man, I'm with you. There will be times I'll come to church, and I just know what I did yesterday. And I wrestled to even come because I felt disqualified. I don't know what your life is. I don't know what you did this week. I don't know what you thought this week. I don't know how hard it is to be in here right now to even hear me saying this, but have you ever felt like I don't earn, I don't deserve this? I'm too far gone. I'm too big of a sinner. And have you ever felt like God is punishing you by ignoring you? If you don't listen to anything else today, hear me out. What this text shows us is that we leave God. He doesn't leave us. I don't know if you read that. What this text reveals is that we leave God. We run. We hide. We blame. If you're feeling far this morning, if you're feeling distant this morning, it is not because he has left you. If there is one thing this text teaches us about the aftermath of this sin is that we hide and God seeks You know, I I wonder if this is like the inspiration for the game hide and seek. I don't know. You know how like nursery rhymes and children's games come from like weird, dark places. 
I was kind of like looking up Wikipedia for like Ring Around the Rosie. I don't know if you ever heard that like old, like, I, I don't even think it's true, but like they, like it might have come from like the bubonic plague. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. You know, you ever like the Pied Piper? Like it's really weird stuff. Like he's playing his pipe and the kids are just following him and he's like, anyway. So I don't know, maybe this is the inspiration for hide and seek. But if there's one thing that you can leave here today, take this note. And then at this point, you can, I don't know, go through social media, whatever it is, take this with you. Get on your phone, pay attention. So we hide and God seeks. There's no other way around it. And here's the interesting thought. The text tells us that Adam, this is so interesting. So, and again, I told you I'm gonna be all over its place today. So just stay with me. The text tells us that Adam heard the sound of God walking in the garden. What's going on? What's going on in paradise? Like, I feel like, and it says he walked in the cool of the day. I feel like Adam knew when God was coming. Like, I feel like they had a regular time. I feel like in paradise, God would regularly come down to meet with Adam and Eve. And he said he heard him walking. Like, I just want to ponder a little bit. I don't, again, I don't, I don't want to be a heretic, so I won't go there. Think about it. Adam and Eve in Eden experienced, an, maybe they experienced like an embodied presence of God. Could this possibly have been Jesus? Visiting with man? We can't be sure, but some theologians do ponder. He heard the sound of God walking. Could this have possibly been Jesus? Some theologians ponder, or could this be an embodiment of God visiting his creation, meeting with his son and his daughter? Now, we can't be sure, but I can picture the gospel here. Can you see the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? God, the offended party, comes down after the party who is offended? You see the gospel? God, the offended party, coming down to this earth to draw the offender out of hiding? And to lovingly call them to repentance? I've been, this whole week, I've been thinking about the questions that God asked Adam and Eve. It says that God came down. Adam heard him, you know, walk in and they ran and hid and all of that stuff. And I've been thinking about the questions. In particular, the very first question he says is, where are you? Now, do you think that God doesn't know where they're at? You know, it reminds me when I play hide and seek with my son, right? You just kind of roll your eyes. All right, dad, come get me. Where are you? <laughs> like, you're right there. I see you. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like laughing and making all these noises. And I'm just like the worst hider in history. The worst. <laughs> he's like, can you see me, dad? You know, he's like, you know, it's just like, it's like, I know where he's at. Can you imagine God saying, where are you? This isn't 
like a geographical question. This isn't a question about where they are physically. Where are you? And can I say this just by way of Christian maturity, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room and you want to grow and you want to be a disciple and you want to mature, can, can I just say this? I believe how we respond to that question will reveal how we've responded to the gospel. Where are you? Those who, whose lives have been marked by the cross of Jesus Christ. When God asks, where are you? We respond in humility. Those who have been marked by the cross, we are a repenting people. We are a people that we admit our faults. We, we invite accountability if you've been marked by the cross. Like people who've been marked by the cross pray prayers of examination daily. And, and they say what David said, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked ways in me. Reveal it, God. Examine my heart. This is the first prayer of examination. God is teaching, he's guiding, he's calling his sinful people out to begin to examine their hearts. A person who's been marked by the gospel is a person that apologizes, repents. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? Uh, when was the last time you said, I'm sorry? When was the last time you said, I'm sorry? When was the last time you took ownership of your own mess? Yeah. We don't like that. That's too much, right? And I really think it is a generational thing. Every generation has its idols and it's so we can rip on generations. But there's just this like, like it's all about affirmation and all about words of positivity and it, no negativity and no challenging and no, and we become so sensitive and I, and I believe in mental health and I, and I believe that we shouldn't be hammered over the head, trust me. But when was the last time we've allowed God to say, where are you? And when you responded humbly, gospel centered, said, I'm a mess and it's on me. Wow. It's on me. Those whose lives who are not marked by the gospel respond much like Adam. They deflect, deny, cover up, blame shift, lie. When we're not regularly in awe of the cross, we're sensitive, defensive, Always blaming, always running, always hiding, never growing up into maturity and accountability. Those who have been transformed by the love of Christ understand the truths of the gospel. Though we may fall, fail in sin, we respond to Jesus in humility and repentance. Sometimes I wonder, what would have happened if Adam 
when God came down, owned up to it all. What would, have, what would have happened if Adam said, our eyes have been open. We ate of the fruit you told us not to. We're a mess. We've thought about hiding. We've thought about running. I've thought about blaming my wife, but the reality was you gave me that prohibition. What if Eve would have said no? What if Eve would have been gay to Adam and Adam would have said no? What if they both would have been, and they both would have came out and told God, God, we're here and we're a mess, we're a wreck, but we know that you're good. And you know what? God's like the ultimate therapist. Love therapy, love counseling. Think of Jesus and some counseling. Man, those are those tools right there. Notice the questions that he asks. You know, like a good counselor. I'm not very good. I just tell people, hey, this was wrong, do this. I need to get a little better. But he, God comes down and he says, where are you? Right? Why don't you search your own heart right now? Let's see if you can see. God's going to lead you in a dis. I could tell you, but I want you to discover where things went wrong. Have you ever, I mean, you could take these three questions and just leave today and that can be your prayer time. I could spend, I'll cry, I'll break before the Lord if I just ask these three questions. Where are you? Where am I? How about this? He says, where are you? But then he also says, uh, who told you? Right? Because who told you you were naked? Who told you? And what God is doing is saying, where's the lie at? What's the source of that? That, that belief that where you're at, where did that come from? Is that me? Or, or did somewhere around the road, did you listen to something or someone else? And then he goes on and he goes, where are you? Who told you? And then he says, did you, did you do the thing? Did you do the one thing I told you not to do? <laughs> and so he points them back to the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I got to move. We move from the immediate response of humanity to sin, running, blame casting, blame shifting, denying, lying, covering up, hiding. We move in the immediate response of, of God coming down, searching after the hiders, applying mercy, asking questions, drawing them out. We move from the instant reaction to the long-term consequences. This section is characterized by the word curse. Curse. Which is really interesting because if you just dive into the text, you'll realize God curses the snake. And then God says, the ground is cursed because of you. But that word curse isn't really used against Adam and Eve. Now, I'm not implying that there isn't a curse. There is judgment here. But it's just really fascinating kind of who gets the direct curse here. And the word curse can be a snare. It can be to bind, to bind but, but it's, it's pretty clear that the early readers would read this and see this as kind of God's judgment over those who attempted to disrupt his order and, and usurp his authority. First, God addresses the source of this seduction, the serpent. And if you want to know more about the serpent, we talked about that last Sunday. Remember I told you, somebody asked me, you don't really believe in a talking snake, do you? And so we dealt with all that last Sunday. Go back if you, if you have some weird thoughts about that. But God addresses the source of this seduction, the serpent, who we will realize later is Satan. Now, a lot, a lot, of, 
I laugh because I'm one of them, and there might be a few of you here, so no shame in your game. I'm there. But a lot of people think that this is just about how the serpent lost his legs. <laughs> right? There it is. There's the story that how he lost his legs. No, 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 it's not. It's not. This isn't about how the snake lost his legs. This is less about his legs, and this is more about his humiliation. Think about it. What was once the most crafty beast is now the lowliest beast. Right? Remember in two, now the snake, the serpent was more crafty. Or Genesis 3, early on, the snake was the most craftiest beast in the field, most wise, most intelligent. I mean, that's got to be a lot of pride. To be able to walk around knowing that you're the most intelligent in the field. And so what we see is the most craftiest gets brought down to the lowliest. Are you guys with me? Yeah. Are, you, are you hearing me? Yeah. The one who tried to ascend high is now brought low and will forever be associated with filthy, slimy, slithering beast. Like Satan's association will be with the thing that slithers on its belly and eats dust. And dust here is a, is a symbol of death. You with me? Yeah. Yeah. We could talk about legs and all that stuff at another time, but I really need you to see this is, this is the humiliation of Satan. Second, God addresses the woman who was deceived by the snake. Two, two consequences. First one is pain, pain and labor. Also, some could read even conception, which actually would bring a whole different reality of pain because there's definitely not pain in conception. So some folks would even, some theologians would even look in and say just the pain that the child will produce, the anxiety, and even women in ancient culture, like if they didn't have, if they were, if they were barren, there would be an anxiety, will I have children or will I not? Because that's where my value is. also could possibly talk about this pain and labor. And I want you to remember back in Genesis chapter one, remember mankind was, it was just this beautiful world and God said, multiply. And so what was meant to be a blessing is now painful. Bringing another life into this world will be marked by pain. Like the thing that is supposed to bring us the most joy will also be the source of some of our greatest physical pain. Number two, not only will there be pain in childbearing, but conflict between genders. Some of you are like, well, this is such a patriarchal or archaic text. Well, it is, but there's truth. There's truth. And when I say patriarchy, I recognize that that's a bad word. I'm not talking about toxic patriarchy, but it is a patriarchal world in which this text is written. But nonetheless... The conflict between genders is true. As our own gods wrestling for control and all the married couples said amen. Okay. Yeah, the men are like. Oh. Both genders will constantly be wrestling and they'll suffer deeply with this tension. 
in particular, a woman in a man's world? Has there been no suffering for women? Living in a male-dominated society prior to Genesis 3 was not. After sin comes in to contend with genders and just physiologically as a norm having to deal with one gender physically that might be weaker than the other physically. Are you with me? Finally, to the man, he'll, he'll experience resistance in his work. The ground that was so easy and so fertile in Eden would be hardened and hazardous in the rest of the world. Now, I want you to note, and this is for all men and women in this room, it's not work that is cursed. It's the work conditions. Remember, we went back to Genesis 2. And we talked about the good and beautiful work is good and it's beautiful. It's great to have purpose. It's great to see things done with your hands to order. Like when you are moving in your gifts, like there's energy. Amen. Amen. It becomes hazardous, right? Well, sin causes us to be workaholics, right? Or, 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 Or our work is good, but our boss sucks. Our coworkers are hard. There is, it's not easy. And so though there's joy in my work, there's the work conditions. There's thorns and there's thistles and and what would have been easy to work the ground from the sweat of his brow, the pain of his body. Man will struggle his entire life to provide. He'll suffer aches and pains in a world that is resisting his work and then he'll go back to the dirt and all that work will seemingly feel like it was for nothing because you could pass it down but you can't take it with you you can't take it with you what's the point there's so much more to unpack but here's what I want to make clear The consequences of sin, the results of a world where you are your own God will be marked by humiliation and pain, conflict and resistance. That's what a world looks like apart from God. That's what happens when you become your own God. That's what happens when you start making decisions and calling the shots and determining what is good, bad, right, and wrong. That's the results. Humiliation, pain, conflict, and resistance. Now, I want us to breathe for a minute. You guys are doing great. Maybe I just want to breathe. I want us to recognize that we live in a world that wants to twist God's judgment. And you know what? I've spent time with churches, church leaders, and individuals who like take opposite approaches. Yep. Let's talk for a minute. Okay, hear me out. I've had conversations with fundamentalists. And fundamentalists can mean a whole bunch of things. But here's what some usually do. They weaponize Genesis 3. And use God's judgment. Maybe not all. But kind of, I'm just kind of creating a caricature 
Some folks will weaponize Genesis 3 and use God's judgment as a hammer to beat people down. Have you ever met these people? Have you ever seen them with signs? God hates homosexuals. You ever seen that? You ever see judgment or you ever see sin being weaponized to beat folks down? To dehumanize? And here's what happens. As they weaponize Genesis 3, they ignore Genesis 1 that says that regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of sexual orientation, every human being on this planet was made in the image and likeness of God. Everybody. And because, there, it, because that truth is there, everybody is worthy of value, dignity, and worth. And the words that we say, the signs that we hold up, can harm. When there's no grace. Are you with me? While at the same time, we live in the Bay Area... And I've had conversations with progressives. Again, caricatures of the word. And you know what they tend to do? The opposite. They overemphasize the image of God as a way to justify, justify living any way you want. Right? Like we've seen them on Oprah, right? They're so-called pastors, leaders that kind of will declare we were all made in God's image. And as a result, God doesn't make mistakes. Have you heard this? Yeah, yeah. And so your, your lifestyle choices are not a mistake. Wow. You see, both sides have more in common than they like to admit. Right. Right. Just like the fundamentalist who minimizes Genesis 1 and misrepresents God's love and grace, the progressive minimizes Genesis 3 and misrepresents God's justice and judgment. Are you guys with me? Yeah. Yet scripture is clear. This beautiful world is broken. Jeez. This beautiful world has been destroyed. It has been broken by sin. And that's a tension to live in. And any group or individual or church that denies that tension and leans one way or another is not the gospel. I was having a conversation, me and my Starbucks conversations, with a really sweet young man who was attending our church. And he was openly gay. And he knew that our church, we consider ourselves welcoming, but we're a non-affirming church. <clears throat> and uh, we were having a great dialogue back and forth. And, um, you know, I, I asked, I was like, why do you, knowing that we're welcoming, but we're not affirming, right? Like, why do you continue to come? Like, there's a lot of open churches 
You know, you know what I'm saying? Everyone here? I mean, that may not be the greatest pastoral advice, but I would just say, like, why? There are a lot of opening and affirming. Like, there are, in the Bay Area, you can find that. And you know what he told me? He's like, I've tried, and they just don't teach the word. They just don't teach the word. I'm hungry for this. One of the hardest conversations I had, um, because I authentically love everyone I sit with, no matter where they're at. But I have to live in the tension of Genesis 1 and 3 if I'm going to be faithful to the very word that he loves. i got to be faithful to it. Though this world was created very good, the reality of the fall is that sin has broken everything. Our relationship with God has been broken. The scripture says that we hide from his presence. They hid from his presence. Our relationship with ourselves have been broken mentally. Anybody dealing with mental? We fear anxiety, depression, guilt, fear, shame. That's all in the text. Broken relationship with God. We run. We hide from him. Broken relationships with ourselves. We battle with doubt, anxiety, worry. Broken relationships with each other. Husband and wife, friend, neighbor. We dominate each other. We try to control one another. We have borders and boundaries and nations with armies and nuclear arsenals. Even our relationship with creation was broken. Thorns and thistles, natural disasters, everything has been turned upside down. And so you can't overemphasize Genesis 1 without understanding Genesis 3. But you can't overemphasize Genesis 3 without understanding what God has done in Genesis 1. Nothing has escaped the consequences of the fall. You can try to deny it, but scripture is clear. Sin has contaminated everything. Gender and sexuality has been affected by the fall. Psychology and biology has been affected by the fall. Work, relationships, and even spirituality all have been contaminated by the fall. What in the world can possibly be done to reverse this curse? We're gonna, I'm going to invite the team to come up. What in the world can possibly be done to reverse this curse? I love this because there's a hidden treasure in this text. There is a hidden treasure. There's a pearl of great price in this text. I want to go back to, and we can put it up on the screen, verse 15, and we're going to finish. God is cursing Satan. He's cursing the serpent, putting him on his belly, humiliating him. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 15 says this. And it's for you here on the screen. I want you to see this. He says, I'm going to put hostility. That's what enmity is between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I just don't, it doesn't just mean like, oh, from now on, you know, women are going to hate snakes. (laughs) But I want you to see that last line there. He, singular, shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. He's, he's talking to the snake right here. You guys see that? This text 
is what's known as the first proclamation of the gospel. God is preaching. The first preacher of the gospel. He's prophesying. On the darkest day in human history, like the fallout, the aftermath, everything has been turned upside down. God, there's a hidden treasure. God is saying someone is coming. A he, someone is coming from Eve's line. Y'all see that? Pain and childbirth. It's really fascinating. Somebody is coming. Someone is coming from the line of Eve who's going to ultimately deal with this serpent. Here's what's going to happen. The serpent's head is going to be crushed, but this person's going to be wounded in the process. Are you with me? Bible readers in the house. (laughs) Anybody ever do like, you know, January's coming, you're going to try to do the year, you know, whole Bible plan. The minute you get to a genealogy, you're done. (laughs) You skip over the genealogies maybe. Right? You ever skip over a genealogy in scripture? Like I'm guilty. Like a genealogy is coming. In fact, so this is Genesis 3 and literally in two more chapters, Genesis 5, a genealogy is coming. Allow me to bore you. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and died. When Canaan uh, had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. And Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. And it goes on and on and on and on. And the Old Testament goes on occasionally stopping to record generation descendant after descendant why what is God doing why is he so meticulously keeping records I'm gonna tell you why because God is faithful to his word though we may fail God always keeps his promises and in the darkest day in human history God promises a descendant of Eve who is coming who will take everything that we did wrong and make it right And so the Old Testament, the New Testament is very meticulous about genealogies because the first gospel was preached that a descendant is coming. Pay attention. Pay attention. And what we will see, both in Luke, Luke's gospel, the birth of Jesus, Christmas is coming. In Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Mary is recorded. And goes all the way back to Adam. A treasure. A hidden treasure. Christ is coming. To deal. With evil and with sin. And to make everything that we. We did wrong. Right. How? And I'm taking a little extra time here. And I promise 
I'm going to finish. How, how, how will he? Hidden treasure. You ready? Let me read this to you. I don't know if you saw this. I believe it's verse 21 or 22. We could put it for you on the screen of Genesis 3. Listen. After Adam and Eve kind of, you know, God, God finds them. God curses the snake, passes this judgment. God does something for them. Scripture says, And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skin. Did you know they had garments of fig leaves? That's what they sewed together. But God said, ah, uh, you're, I'm, you're not going to clothe yourself in your own sin. Like I have a theory that maybe it wasn't an apple, it was a fig. It was a fig that they ate, right? I mean, they clothed themselves in fig leaves, but that's, I'm just saying. That would really work here, but I'm just saying. But they clothed themselves and God says, no, I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to cover you. And notice we go from fig leaves to skin, which is kind of weird, right? You know what that means? That means that an animal, something had to die to cover them. You see that? And God said, I'm going going to get it for you. That's That's not vegetation. That's skin. An animal had to die. A sacrifice, an atonement. And then what, look, what happens? And, and who clothed them? God said, I'm going to clothe. You tried clothing yourself. You tried pretending. You tried running. You tried hiding. You tried covering up. I'm going to clothe you. And that right there is a picture of what Christ did. The descendant of Eve. On the cross. That's the gospel. On the cross. He took your sin upon himself. And on the cross, he didn't just take your sin, but then he gave to you his perfect record of righteousness. His 33 and a half years of perfection, he gave it to you so that when you stand before the Lord, you don't stand in your fig leaves. You stand in the perfect, pure, white, righteous robes of Christ. The atoning sacrifice has now covered you and made you white as snow. I'm going to invite the team to come up. Today is your day. If you don't know Jesus, you can know him. Maybe you know him, but you have been running and you have not been answering the question, where are you? Today is the day to answer the question, where am I? Today is the day to stop clothing yourself in your own coverings and to just say, Jesus, clothe me in your righteousness because my coverings are the fruit of my labor, the fruit of my sin, but your coverings is the fruit of perfection. And so will you just take time right where you're at just to think about the covering of Christ. Let us respond in worship and then we'll pray.